We are in the middle of a series that is nesting itself in the big picture of an incredible prophetic passage we looked at back in December about the coming Messiah who gives us a promise that of the increase of his kingdom reign, there will be no end. That's a good word. That's a good promise. That's a good thing to wake you up in the morning and get you out of bed. That of the increase of God's reign in your life, there need be no limit. There need be no end. His will is that it would continue to grow. And there's a hundred different verses in the New Testament that encourage us to take that powerful mindset that God's not done with you yet. That God's not done with seeing his kingdom come to bear, breakthrough, transformation. He's not even close to done. In fact, it's going to well up into eternity. He's never even going to be done in eternity. It's going to take an eternity to exhaust God increasing his kingdom in and through you. Because it's directly connected to knowing God. And he is eternal, so it's going to take an eternity to get to know him. I know it's kind of like a mind twister, but it's also incredibly hopeful. That that piece of eternity, like Jesus said, eternal life is knowing God. Well, that clearly starts now. That's the New Testament, New Covenant picture. Knowing God is what it's all about. And it's going to just continue to expand and increase through all of eternity. But the awesome news is it starts now. Genuinely, legitimately, really. And then can just continue to increase. And so we've been looking so far this year at some of the ways in which Given this incredible privilege that God wants us to know him, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection at its essence is about making possible that eternal life so that sinners can be forgiven, transformed, renewed, and know God. Life is all about knowing God from creation to consummation. That is ultimately the story of the Bible. Like I read a, an article this week my mom gave me about how in, in COVID-19 in the last couple of years, like religion suffered. And it was like, that, that was the headline of the article. And it was like, it's an interesting article, and, and, but it was like, yeah, right there, well, the headline's the problem. This has never been about religious rules and institutions and, and, and blah, blah, blah. It's always been about relationship. And a pandemic or not is not going to take away the possibility of relationship with God. And so they're like, that's, that's, you're missing the point if you think about, oh, well, it's this, you know, showing up at this church building and doing X, Y, and Z that fulfill this, these outward, you know, whatever, norms and customs. And there is certain value to that. You can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Jesus did things that were from every, you know, outward definition, religious actions. And he told us a lot of good things that are rites and rituals, if you will, and sacred practices. But at the end of it all, what's the whole purpose of it? It's not the stuff, it's the relationship. And so we are a, a people that's all about that good news right here. That God is not done. He has made himself present and available in more ways than we can possibly comprehend and imagine. And so at times, there's a healthy looking at what's our part in that? What's our responsibility? What's our response to God's initiative, to what God has already done to how available God is. And so we're spending a few weeks now looking at some of the ways in which we can seek God. We can seek his presence. 
We've looked at the power of his word. We've looked at wonder and growing in the reality of God's goodness and power and blessings and and holy gifts that are all around us that are meant to be those conduits of wonder and praise. And this morning I want to look at one that is quite upside down to our culture. Talking about seeking the presence of God in weakness. Weakness is not an American value. I mean, how many of us wake up and be like, I want to be a good American day, I just want to feel really weak. No. In fact, like, you know, American in, in, in some pretty awesome, and I'm, I'm, I love America, uh, some awesomely appropriate ways, we have been a model to the world that like, no, you don't have to be weak and you don't have to just suffer. There's more to life than that. You can overcome, you can conquer the elements, you can invest and work hard and, and be prosperous. There's some awesome things there. Some of them are dangerous if you wake up in the morning and you always think you got it together. Because there is an upside down reality in the kingdom of God that says you are going to find God in your weakness. And I just want to press into that this morning because it is unnatural to feel that way or to see weakness and not want to run from it. To feel weakness and not to want to just kind of get rid of it or swipe it under the rug or flee from it or recoil from it. I mean, even in Genesis, that's the story of Adam and Eve when they are confronted with their weakness, their vulnerability. What do they do? They run from God and they hide from each other. Soon as they're aware of their weakness, you know, they they ate the fruit They become aware of their frailty, their weakness, their vulnerability. And what do they want to do? They they sow fig leaves because they're ashamed. They want to hide from each other. And then they even physically hide from God walking with them in the garden. So God came for his, you know, afternoon hangout, chat, talk. Such a cool picture. Just a walk with God in the garden. And God's there. and He's like, hey, where are you guys at? They say, we're hiding from you. It's such a powerful picture of humanity that in our weakness, in our vulnerability, we want to hide from each other and God. And when Christ comes along and takes care of all that we might legitimately need to be ashamed about or guilty of or scared of or vulnerable about as he nails that all to the cross so that now in him, Colossians 1 says we are blameless without accusation, without reproach, meaning there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of without accusation, meaning the devil who is the accuser of the the brethren and stands before the throne of God trying to accuse them of guilt and shame and sin and all this bad stuff. Colossians 1 says when you're standing in Christ, God can't even hear that. He doesn't even hear those accusations, and so you shouldn't listen to him either. Because oftentimes, even after we're followers of Christ, we are our own worst accusers. That does not honor the cross of Christ. It says your sins are bigger than what Jesus did for you on the cross. So we have to get rid of the mindset of even accusing ourselves. Christ has done so much through his life, death, and resurrection. His perfection becomes our perfection. We wear Christ before God. 
So we have no reason anymore to take that weakness, that vulnerability, what used to be shame, we have no reason anymore to to wear it as our own. In fact, what we're going to see this morning is that the Bible gives us every reason to take the weakness when we feel it and confront it and in that find God's presence. And so what I just want to simply encourage us with this morning is in the reality that none of us have our character perfectly transformed yet to be like Jesus, we're all in process, so we all are aware of the fact that we fail sometimes. And we can't do it all. And there are weaknesses in our characters that we're confronted with on a regular basis. And my encouragement this morning from God's word is going to be when you feel those weaknesses, that you just, you know that on your strength, you can't do it. Don't run from that. Don't have shame over that. Don't hide from that. Don't recoil from that. Confront it because it's a pathway to God's powerful presence. Confronting weakness is one of the ways we seek him and find him. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10, to give Paul's personal testimony of this. A little bit of context here is that Paul is trying to establish his credibility with the Corinthians as he is getting personally attacked. Insults are coming his way from many directions, even from within the church. People are saying he is not a credible apostle. He is not worthy to be planting churches. Don't you know who this guy was? He was the one who, 10 years ago, he was responsible for allowing Christians to be killed. He was the one who was giving the orders to go into house churches, bash in the doors and drag out people and put them in prison. He's an awful guy. Don't trust him. He has ulterior motives. The church was saying this about him in some places. So Paul spends a little bit of time trying to reassure the Corinthian church that he planted that they can trust his leadership. They can trust his authority. And he goes on here. We'll pick it up kind of in the middle of the argument. And he goes on and says this, verse 1. So I must go on boasting. There, so he's talking to, it's a weird language. He's kind of doing a little tongue-in-cheek, like, I'm embarrassed you're making me do this, but let me give you some of my credentials. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me 
than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The conclusion there is the upside-down reality that I want us to challenge ourselves to bring before the Lord and surrender and say, can I make this a new reality for me? That when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul even talks about here this kind of natural desire to recoil from this weakness, and he's saying, but he, where he concludes, even in prayer, he was praying to ask God to take away this thing that made him feel weak. That's that recoiling. That's like, I don't even want to deal with that. I want to get over it. I'm kind of scared about it. I don't want to live towards it or confront it. I just want it gone. And his conclusion, though, is, nope, I'm going to confront it. When I confront my weakness, bring it to the Lord, then I am strong in him. So Paul's establishing his credibility here. He talks about these reflections upon incredible encounters with God, things that he says God told him that he is not even allowed to share, things that were uttered to him in paradise, in heaven. He went to the third heaven. I don't even know what that means. Way up there. (laughs) I mean, there's some scholarship on it. It really doesn't matter for right now. It's just he's having some intense, deep, powerful encounters with God. Like way supernatural stuff where he's like, I don't even know if it was in the body or out of the body. I know it was in the third heaven, in paradise. I'm hearing things that, you know, humans are typically not even allowed to hear. I mean, so he's talking about some rare air of deep, authentic encounters with God. And then he talks just honestly about, hey, you know, in my weakness, in my flesh, there's a danger with that, which is that I become conceited. I start to come back to earth, if you will, and, 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 and look around at other people. And, oh, well, God didn't tell them what he told me. Oh, man, I've been up to the third heaven. You've been like .05. He's just being honest about kind of these natural tendencies that now this incredible thing has happened to him. God has encountered him in such crazy ways that are so beyond the norm, he has a danger of getting conceited. By those things. Being tempted towards pride. And so Paul surmises that to keep him from getting conceited, God didn't answer a prayer to remove something in his life. This thorn in the flesh. He says he asked God three times to take it away. God's answer was, my grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now I want to focus on this answer from God. Because it speaks of this spiritual principle about weakness, confronting weakness and finding God's presence. I don't want to get too wrapped up this morning in in a very interesting question of like, what is Paul's thorn in the flesh? It's a very interesting question and 
And I've, I've heard it used in a way that, I'll just be honest, like I, I think is not right at all. <laughs> it's been used, as we've talked in our church, about the nature and ministry of Jesus, who is no friend of sickness or disease, but rather he demonstrates the kingdom of God right in everything that he does. One of those ways is that he heals sickness and disease. And so that's our authoritative model. Jesus taught us to do what he did, to pray as he prayed, to live as he lived, to be sent out like the Father sent him out, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, preach the good news, cast out demons. He gave us that ministry. But I've often heard, if someone doesn't get healed, they go here. Oh, see, look, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Must have been a sickness or disease, and, and God said, no, I'm not healing it. Three times. And we can talk later about it, but let me just surmise it or summarize it to say the vast majority of scholars have a completely different opinion on what that is. When Paul says, a thorn in my flesh, that is a very common phrase of the day. It is a slang term in Judaism that is very similar to a slang term that we have. Like if I were to say, hey man, or wow, let me tell you, this guy in my life, he's a real pain in my butt. It's the exact same thing. When I say that, none of you are like, well, let's lay hands and pray for you because you have a physical you know, issue that needs to be healed, your pain right now, your sickness, your disease. None of you are thinking that because you all know what that means. I'm talking about a person in my life that is causing me emotional strife, right? You all know it. It's a phrase we use. It's exactly what Paul's doing. It's a very well-known Jewish phrase talking about people that are causing him emotional strife. And you look in the, the finish of what he goes on to say in verse 1210, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, that's from people, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. So it's interesting because as you know, we're kind of navigating through this, what most scholars point to is that Paul wrote this letter of, Corinth, of, of Corinthians at a time when he's living in Ephesus and facing the most intense persecution and insults of his ministry from his own Jewish people, where he is being insulted, rejected, abandoned, persecuted by his own tribe, his own people, his own extended family, the ones who are supposed to be his most supportive group. He's experiencing a deep level of real pain, rejection, abandonment. So it would make sense that he would say, that he would plead three times, God, take this away. You know what also makes sense? Why God would, in a sense, say, I can't do that for you. My grace is going to have to be sufficient. Why? Well, for God to answer that kind of a prayer, God's going to have to break one of his own laws of creation, which is that he's not making people robots. If the Jews are rejecting the Messiah and thus anyone preaching the Messiah, God would have to override their free will and just make them into robots in order for this persecution of Paul to stop. But not coincidentally, this is the one suffering that Jesus said his people are going to encounter, the same one that he did which will be the rejections, the betrayal, the insult, the persecution that comes from preaching Jesus as crucified Lord of all. 
Jesus said, if it's going to happen to me, or if it happens to me, it's going to happen to you. That's the only place I can find where Jesus said, this kind of suffering is. And so it makes sense for God to say, he didn't actually say no. He just said, my grace is sufficient. So that all fits what most of the scholars say are the situations, the context for where Paul's going to be praying this prayer. But with that said, the, the source of the problem isn't the really the main point. The main point I want to get at is God's response to Paul in the middle of these insults and persecution reveals a deep spiritual secret that's at the very core of the gospel, the very core of our relationship with God. It is through confronting our own weakness that we will encounter his powerful presence in greater measure. And so while we don't in any way want to make an accommodation of weakness and just say, well, that's going to be my permanent reality because there's lots in the Bible that says he wants to transform and overcome. When we're there and we know it and we feel it and we're feeling that weakness in whatever form it's coming, the point is don't fake it. Don't become a hypocrite and sweep it under the rug and say it's not there. The freedom we have in Christ is confronted. Use it as a path to pursuing his presence so that you can say with Paul at the end of the day, because when I am weak, that's where God made me strong. I want to encourage us so we can know that our weakness is speaking to us about the opportunity for a collision of grace. The opportunity for a collision of grace. That's what that's exactly what God said. My grace is sufficient for you, for this situation, for whatever the situation is. My grace is sufficient because my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. There's, there's some beautiful phrases in there, and I want to unpack them. My grace is sufficient. If you're not familiar, there's two primary definitions of grace. I believe if you unpack them deeply, they're all one. But to parse it out a little bit, when God says my grace is sufficient, a lot of us might think of that undeserved love, that undeserved goodness, where salvation is by grace alone, not through works. Grab onto it by faith. That's that undeserved love, that agape love of God that pours out from heaven even while we are God's enemies running away from him. That is that grace-filled, undeserved goodness, the nature and character and heart of God that would die for a prodigal while they are in the pig slop. And there's another aspect of grace which has to do with his empowering presence, where God is with us in a way where his strength manifests through us. So we can pray, God, I need your grace right now. And it's not talking about necessarily like the grace of I need you to forgive me of my sins, although you can see how they're all connected. It wraps up in that. But to pray for his grace is to pray for his empowering presence to be there with you. And that's really the emphasis in this one, where God says, my, in, in the midst of Paul, struggling with his weakness, 
struggling with the insults and the persecutions and all the hardship that that's bringing on his life and his natural gut response is just, I want it to go away, God, which is all of us. And God's response is, my grace is sufficient for this right here. What he means is the, par- is the next phrase. My power, so my empowering presence, that sense of my grace, my empowering presence is going to be perfected in your weakness right now. And those words power and perfected are beautiful. The word power is dynamis. You write it out. Or excuse me, you write it out, it looks like dunamis. You say it, it sounds like dynamite. It's, that's a cool picture. It's not exactly what it means, but it is the, the Greek word from where we get our word dynamite, an explosion of power. So this is God saying, my, my explosive power, so this is his grace, his empowering presence with us, his explosive power, It's the word that was used all throughout the Gospels, if all over the place, to describe Jesus' supernatural ministry when he is casting out demons, when he is raising the dead, when he is healing the sick, when he is doing various signs and wonders, clearly like Out of this realm, this is not human strength operating right now. There is some kind of transcendent, above normal, extra normal, supernatural power that's present. The gospel writers regularly sum that up with the word dunamis, right here. Same exact word. It's explosive power. And then God is saying that That power, that empowering presence, that supernatural, explosive power of God's empowering presence will be there when we confront our weakness and bring it to him. But even more so, it'll be perfected. And that's a great word. My power is made perfect or perfected in your weakness. That word perfected is another treasure from the New Testament. It's the word telos. And it means when a designed goal is accomplished. So let's think about that for a moment. When something reaches its creative purpose, its designed goal, it's a telos. It's like, has like, This picture of like the end. It's the end, but it's not a random haphazard end. It's like a goal that has been reached that's had divine purpose and planning from the beginning, and it's finally realized. I mean, you could honestly say that this year, as we started out the year with a battle plan, and a bunch of you came up with through prayer and conversation and God's word, you came up with some goals for this this year. Kingdom goals, to see kingdom increase in your life, those are appropriately called a telos. Where it's, there is a goal in mind, but from the beginning there's a sense of this, is a, this has a divinely orchestrated creative purpose that we're moving towards. And when we get there, it's the telos has been accomplished. 
one of the most famous uses of this in the Bible are actually the very last words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. The Greek of that is tetelestai. It's like the present passive whatever of the goal is accomplished. It's literally the word. God's divine purpose that was moving towards this goal is now accomplished. The telos has been reached. It's been perfected. Bringing that all into here, this is, I love it. It's so incredible. It's God's word to Paul in Paul's weakness, in Paul's struggle, in Paul's natural reaction of, God, will you just take this away? I can't even handle it. God's response to Paul is that in that weakness right there, if Paul will bring it to God, then Paul will reach the divinely designed goal of God's power working through him in its fullness and its completion. In other words, if we won't bring our weakness to God, we will not see the fullness of his power working through us. You're just missing out on part of it. My power is made perfect. It reaches its goal, its end, its fulfillment, its design, its divinely designed goal in your weakness. So God has designed from all eternity past for his power to be with us, his divine empowering presence to be with us. But the design of it is you only get the fullness of it, the completion of it, when you bring your weakness to God and say, I can't do it. So this is good news. (laughs) Maybe one of the most critical truths about our relationship with God and maybe all of the Bible, that the power of God will be perfected in us, in our weakness. So that gives us the courage to confront our weakness, not run from our weakness. For two reasons. One, Christ has already paid for it all, so any reason where it's legitimate guilt and shame and sin, it's already paid for. And you're blameless before him. So that's one reason why you confront it with courage. And the second reason why you confront it with courage is because you want the fullness of God's power in your life. And you're not going to get it if you're hiding weakness from him. My power, God says, is perfected in you, in your weakness, when you bring it to me. And that's why Paul immediately goes on. Like his, his immediate response on paper, I'm not saying this is his immediate response in his life because this may be something that Paul wrestled with for months, if not years. And in fact, I think that's what it is because Paul prayed three times. There's a good chance that that's an allusion to a Nazarite vow, which is maybe why he shaved his head before he went into Jerusalem. And there's these stories and acts that kind of fit all together. It's a little bit of like hypothesis, but you can see there's a good chance that Paul was wrestling with this lesson, this truth, that my power will be made perfect in your weakness, that he was wrestling with that for a long, long time. Why? Well, he's a pretty successful guy on his own strength. 
he had everything going for him. That's the confession of Philippians 3, that he ended up at the place to say everything else is rubbish. But how long did it take him to get there? Because what is he talking about? He's talking about the family that he was born into. He's talking about the, the privileged place that he had in society. He's talking about his education. He's talking about his position. He was talking about all of these things that he was born into and, and, and worked hard for, but that he was told by life and society that you are a highly successful, competent person. And while that may be true and submitted to the Lord, God can use that because God used all of those things to further Paul's ministry. But at the same time, if you are relying on those things as your source of power for life, you're in a very dangerous place. So Paul had to get to that place and God had to help him get to that place where weakness became something not that he just wanted to have God wipe away real quick, but that he could confront it, knowing that that's the place where God's supernatural power was going to then work through him. So weakness <laughs> became something that he confronted with <laughs> all the gusto of Paul to the point where he says, now I boast about my weakness. I mean, there, it's so, his personality is funny to me. He's like, yeah, I'm on the border here. Of, I've had so many awesome things happen in my life, and God's given these great revelations, and yeah, I kind of am kind of like the perfect guy from you know, the perfect life, and I'm very successful. So I was getting a little conceited. I could boast about it, but I was getting a little conceited, so God taught me to you know, rely on, on his power and, and, and confront weakness, and now I'm going to boast about this. <laughs> like, it's, just, it's a funny guy. But that's what he says. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ, this is huge, I will boast about my weaknesses, that's confronting your weaknesses, being honest and real about them, so that, what? The power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. That, that has to become a way of life for all of us. If we want the power of Christ to rest upon us. Therefore, I will boast gladly about my weaknesses so that, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults. So here's the weaknesses that he's feeling. The insults, most likely from his own people, from the church, from the Jews, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And I boast about all these things. Why? He's, he's talking to himself as much as he's talking to the Corinthian church. This is his testimony. I boast about those weaknesses because when I am weak, this is what God's teaching me, he's saying, because when I'm weak, he's strong. Actually, when I'm weak, then I'm strong because the power of Christ is upon me. Our goodness, excuse me, our weakness is where we meet God's power. He had this collision of grace in a place he didn't want it. 
He just wanted God to take it away, let him get on with the business of feeling like a powerful church planter. God said, my power is going to be perfected in you. Not when I make everything perfect and all your situations and circumstances easy. But in the midst of life, as you feel your weakness, you bring it to me. Then a collision of grace takes place in your life. I love the place of desperate humility this calls us to live in. That we never grow beyond being completely dependent on him. Like even Paul, who I would guess is probably more mature than most of us at this point in his life. I don't know. I mean, just in general, like he's had these crazy revelations of God, these crazy experiences of supernatural power flowing through him. I mean, just these, you read his testimonies like these, you know, the third heaven and things that are not allowed to be told to any other humans. It's like, wow, so this guy knows God. He genuinely says, I consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom's sake I've given up everything. So this man has encountered God. He knows God. And yet his own life testimony from God's word to him is you never grow beyond that simple place of desperate need just to stay humbly connected to him in our weakness. You never grow beyond that. To me, the picture right there, that's the picture that Jesus is painting of abiding in the vine. It's the John 15, where Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, which means just to remain, to live, to dwell, you just stay connected. Whoever abides in me and I in him He is the one that bears much fruit. That's good news, but check this out. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you want. It'll be done. And by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. To me, this is is a parallel passage to what God said to Paul. My power is made perfect in you in weakness. A branch is weak in the sense that it has to stay connected to the vine forever or else it will die. It never grows and becomes its own vine in Jesus' analogy. Its purpose, its telos, its God-designed goal, God-glorifying goal is to bear great fruit. To the point that you're so connected to the vine, you are asking God and and (laughs) able to ask God whatever you want and it will be done. So that's a humbling passage because I think we all got some work to do. (laughs) But it's there in the words of Jesus. They were so connected to God, our life is bearing so much fruit. God is getting glorified in such a way where people look at our life and the only explanation for the incredible supernatural fruit coming out of our life is that person has got to know God. And yet in that same exact moment, Jesus is saying, but apart from me, 
you can do nothing. So if you don't stay connected in that humble awareness, that weakness, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, God's goal, his divine goal for your life is to bear so much fruit, people see God in you. So we confront weakness head on, knowing that is where we will find his power-filled presence. I believe this is an invitation into daily action. As we walk through life, as we walk with him on a daily basis, I want to encourage us to have that weakness radar out. Turn it on to where when we feel it, we overcome that gut recoiling way back into the garden of, I just want to run from it and have God take it away. I don't want to feel that. Would rather be, oh, your power is perfected in me. You get to show off when I come to you with my weakness so that by your empowering presence, my life bears a fruit that is impossible on my strength but possible with your presence so people see you in and through me even in my weakness. You get the glory. So it becomes the challenge on a daily basis, church, to know that we have the privilege. And I encourage you this week, look for it. Because you're already processing it. Everybody processes weakness, feels weakness, feels feels that, oh, I can't do this, or I'm bearing bad fruit right now, or I just can't handle this. It's too much for me. And then it's typically either brush it under the rug and knock it down or try to do it on my own strength or pull up my own bootstraps or, or ignore it or ask God to just, God, if you love me, you'll perfectly change the situation. You start bartering in ways that are <laughs> not good. Or God's saying, I want you to learn right now what it means for my design for you to reach its fullness, which is overwhelming power can flow through you when you bring your weakness to me. I'll encourage you. There's, that is a way to seek his presence throughout the week. There's much more to, to talk on this and not sure yet. I was planning on sharing some somewhat lengthy personal testimony and then getting into life for Abraham. Maybe we'll come back next week or maybe we won't. But um, we all have a chance to live this out every day. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us the courage to confront weakness. Singing.